often doctors are well-respected in our society, but doctors in the century of the church were not necessarily respected. There were two kind of doctors. You had your snake potion type doctors who were just out there to make a buck. I guess we have those today. And then we also have doctors who uh, really dealt with the upper level of society who could afford a doctor. And it appears that Luke was one of those upper echelon doctors. One, because as if you're able to study the book of Luke in Greek, you understand he is a very learned man. He uses a very large vocabulary. But we shouldn't be looking at the book of Luke for medical terminology. They didn't necessarily have medical terminology. But we will see the beauty in which this person is a well-written man. He can communicate clearly. And Luke is a doctor. But also something that is unique about Luke is that he is a Gentile. He is a Gentile. Luke, in Colossians 4.14, we saw it was being attributed, or uh, Paul was referring to him. But there's a list there in Colossians 4 that Paul is distinguishing the Jews, or these are the ones who are circumcised, and then he speaks of others, and Luke is in that list. And that would have been a reason because he was a Gentile, but also his name itself is a Greek name. It is not a Hebrew name. And as he begins to write, he writes as one who was not one of the twelve disciples. Do you realize that? Sometimes we think, oh, it was written in the New Testament, it was one of the twelve disciples. No, Luke was not. Luke was uh, a traveling partner of the Apostle Paul. But he recognizes here in our text that he's stating, hey, I'm seeking to put together an orderly account of what others have seen firsthand. And he's going to put that together. He is attributing himself of being a disciple, things that have been fulfilled among us, he says, and the word delivered at the end of verse 2, them to us. But as he seeks to put this together, one might attack the book of Luke and say, well, if he wasn't an eyewitness, how can we trust his words? We just got done studying a book of the Bible that was written by someone who was not an eyewitness. Moses was not alive when he wrote, uh, when, he, when the book of Genesis took place. He was not alive during the first portion of even Exodus. And yet, we hold to that to be true. Why? Because we understand that 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Luke is able to write these accounts, yes, because he does a good job of researching thoroughly. He, he says he sp- seeks to do this in verse 3. Look at it. It says, It seemed good to me, Luke writes also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first. That's a pretty big, bold claim. That he has a perfect understanding of everything that happened. So he says, Because I have a perfect understanding of everything that happened, I can share it with you. Uh, another translation translates that phrase from the Greek 
that says, having followed all things closely. He has studied through thorough research. He's not looking back centuries. He's talking to direct eyewitnesses and is able to put these things together. But most importantly, we even think of that that catechism question in the Boys and Girls Catechism. How did we get the Bible? Chosen men who wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We see that it was chosen men, not because they had the wisdom, but because it was given to them for wisdom and understanding. And that's why we rest on the, the truthfulness of Luke's words. Not because of him, but because of the Holy Spirit. And as I've mentioned a couple other times already, Luke is one who will be traveling with the Apostle Paul. Specifically, his second missionary journey, but one person who's done a lot of research felt like they had pieced it together that Luke traveled with the Apostle Paul for 20 years. I don't, I don't know the validity of that, but it was interesting. This is not just somebody who was like, hey, by the way, I spent a little time with Paul. But was well respected. And we see him referring in the, in the we sections, not the we like the little sections, the we when he changes the, the verbiage to we in the book of Acts, referring to himself and Paul. So we understand the author is Luke. But let's look at some of the details of the book. We, looking back, we understand that the book of Luke was written around A.D. 60. The reason why we date it to that, some will try to date it late, which is inaccurate because he does not refer, reference the mention of James. And James was, uh, was, uh, was killed in 61 A.D. There's no mention of the destruction of the temple in 72 A.D. And if he's writing an orderly account, he would include those things because they are major things that happened in the life of the church. He does not reference Paul's execution. Actually, the end of the book of Acts leaves Paul still waiting his trial. And so we begin to rewind and understand that it had to have happened somewhere around 60 A.D. But as he is writing this, we see that he says at the end of verse 3, to write you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is somewhat of a, of a mystery. Uh, some have tried to spiritualize his name and say, well, this is just meaning a lover of God speaking in general terms. But he uses the phrase, most excellent. We see this term used later in the book of speaking of Felix and Festus, who were governors, who were Roman governors. And what seems to be through the heart of the book of Luke and then continuing on into Acts is that he is writing this book to Theophilus, who does not seem to be a follower of Christ, but one who is asking some questions. And Luke is writing those things down for him. Sometimes I believe Scripture keeps things general. For example, the Apostle Paul. He speaks of the thorn in the flesh. And for two centuries, people have tried to figure out, what is the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh? We don't know. 
I mean, we can make some conjectures. But I believe one of the reasons God doesn't give us specific things is because what happens is we begin to say, well, I don't have that specific thorn in the flesh, so it doesn't apply to me. And I think this is true of Theophilus. We don't know exactly who he was, but we all fall under that general category in our unregenerate states. That we need to hear this account from Luke to hear what he is to present. It is clear that Theophilus is a Gentile. Because as we're going to be walking through the book, Luke does not use some Aramaic terms. Aramaic would have been the the common language of people in that day. Instead, he uses Greek terms. He also explains certain Jewish traditions. He also explains geography of Israel or Palestine. So we understand that this is not someone who is very familiar with modern-day Israel. Some would say this would be up in Asia Minor somewhere. We don't know exactly. But what I want us to also understand is that there, it's important that we look at Luke and Acts as one big picture. Because Luke is writing... And saying, Theophilus, here's my first account. And then here's my second account. And we're not going to find contradictions if it's one, one big argument that he's making. Look with me at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke writes, the former account I made, referencing the book of Luke. He says, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So actually in the book of Acts, it points back and helps us understand what's he going to be talking about here in Luke. All that Jesus began to do and to teach, and then he gives the scope, until the day in which he was taken up after the Holy Spirit had given him the command, uh, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commands to the apostles whom he had chosen. So we see that he was seeking to point out all that Jesus began to both do and to teach. But here in our text today, back in Luke, we see that he gives us a clearer purpose for why he is writing. Some have said his, his purpose is just to lay out an orderly narrative in verse 1 or an orderly account. Yet, um, I appreciate I've been taking an online class on, uh, it's called Bible Arcing. Uh, it's not some secret code or anything. It's just looking at the relationships between phrases in the New Testament and specifically in texts to see, to follow train of thoughts. Because this is a letter that's being written. And look at how the English writes it. He writes an orderly narrative to those things which have been fulfilled among us. But he says, and then he gives a couple reasons why and how he's doing this. That he isn't an eyewitness, but that he's examined it. But then he's going to give the reason really in verse 4. That. Or verse 4 should say, so that. Because you could chop out verse 2 and verse 3, and the sentence continues. 
Look at it with me. In order, a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, so that you may know the certainty of the things in which you were instructed. Verse 2 and verse 3 are important information, but it's not the purpose. Verse 1's not the purpose. Verse 4 is the purpose. That you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. That's a pretty bold claim. To be writing someone a letter and to say, in this letter, I'm going to give you everything that you need to know. So when I'm done writing it, you'll have everything to know for certain of those things in which you are instructed. What are those things that we're going to be instructed in? Acts helps us see. All that Jesus did and said. Again, a, a very bold claim. But he has followed it closely for some time past. You know, it's interesting as you look at the book of Luke. Luke is actually the longest book in the New Testament. 25 chapters. Acts is the second longest book at 24 chapters. So if you add up Luke and Acts to kind of think of one account, Luke wrote more than the Apostle Paul. He didn't write, his, he didn't write more books, but volume-wise, he wrote um, 40% of the New Testament. Fun trivia question if you ever ask somebody, hey, who wrote most of the, the text of the New Testament? It was Luke. And often we forget. And throughout the book of Luke, he brings us many messages that we're going to see. The book of Luke presents more than any other work on the Holy Spirit. Now Paul's going to give some of the doctrine behind how the Holy Spirit works. But Luke attributes the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, saying the Holy Spirit is doing this, the Holy Spirit is doing this, the Holy Spirit is doing this. And the beauty, as we understand the book of Luke, is we understand that it is one of the Gospels. It is one of the Gospels that show us Christ. It shows us Christ specifically throughout the book of Luke. We're going to see His devotion to prayer. Often He's getting away, spending time in prayer. His heart of prayer in all things. But Luke is presenting Christ with one goal in mind. To show that Jesus is the perfect Son of Man. In Luke 19, verse 10, we really see kind of the the thesis statement. For the Son of Man, that's the phrase used of Christ, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We can read that phrase, Son of Man, and think, well, this is just helping us see that, that Jesus was a, was a human. That he just lived this earth, or walked on this earth. That he, he lived a good life. That he's to be our example. We live in a society that wants to make Jesus just a good prophet. Who gave some good moralistic teachings. That if we just follow his ways, life goes a little bit better. Because we need to love others as we want to be loved. We need to show kindness that we need to look down on or not. We need to help those who are looked down upon. 
But when we begin to unwrap and understand what it means that Christ is the Son of Man, it is not just speaking about some human. But that's why I use that phrase that Jesus is the perfect Son of Man. Every single one of us, even as women, fall under the title, a son of man. We all descend from Adam. And in Adam, all what? All die. But we will see Christ as a contrast to that. He is greater than the first Adam. He fulfills perfectly that which he was commanded. It was a perfect humanity. And we must guard ourselves as we study any of the Gospels from just lowering Jesus to a level to be our buddy, to think that, hey, here he is. Yes, Jesus walked this earth. Yes, Jesus was a man. He took on flesh. Yes, he is the epitome of a servant, as we see in Philippians 2. But he was not just any man. He was the perfect man. To give you kind of an idea of the outline of Luke, it's not very complex. It's the life of Christ. Chapters 1 to 3, technically I think it's chapter 4, verse 13, we see his birth and kind of preparation. Then we see chapters 4 through 9, the ministry in Galilee, the northern side of Israel, up by the Sea of Galilee. Then in chapter, toward the end of chapter 9, then following from chapter 10 to first chapter 19, a transition to Jerusalem, where it says he set his face to Jerusalem, meaning that he looked toward Jerusalem, that that is where he would be crucified. And then chapter 19 through 25, his death and his resurrection. A time of preparation, a time of proclamation of who he was, a time of teaching his disciples, and a time of salvation through his death and his resurrection. That's the whole book. And as we see the book of Luke, we're reminded that it is one of the four Gospels. We, we often say there's four Gospels, but then we use a term, the synoptic Gospels. Have you heard that term before? The synoptic Gospels mean it's the three that are very similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have very similar characteristics and accounts. And then you have John that comes a little bit later, bringing a lot of different information. And as we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of the things that's helpful is for us to harmonize the three together. And what that means is they're all recording similar things, but then they record different things, and trying to get those into a timeline. Matthew is horrendous to try to put into a timeline. Matthew does not care about timeline. He cares about theme. Not this Matthew. The book of Matthew. And as we understand the book of Matthew, Matthew was written to the Jews. Matthew, because it was written to the Jews, was trying to show Christ as that son of David. 
that son who was the Messiah. Mark. Key word in Mark is immediately. If you like an action-packed book, Mark is the one. Because it's moving quickly. It, it gives a lot of times the, the short versions of accounts. It's keeping things moving, progressing. But as it's doing it, Mark is writing to a Gentile audience. Opposite of Matthew. And as he's writing to the Gentile audience, he's presenting Jesus as the suffering servant. To show Christ as he suffers to save. Again, here, Luke Luke is writing to a Gentile audience showing that Christ is the perfect Son of Man. And then you have John, who's kind of writing somewhat of a general letter, maybe to the churches in Asia Minor. But he's showing Christ being the Son of God, His deity, that He is God incarnate. And so we have four Gospels not showing contradictory pictures of Christ, but showing different aspects of Christ. That we can understand the beauty of the multifaceted Savior that we worship. There are times when Luke will record certain things that Matthew doesn't. And when we're studying the book, we should ask ourselves, why is Luke recording this? Why did he not record something? Sometimes we can find great insights into that. Other times it's like, I don't know. But as we study the book of Luke, specifically toward his birth and around his resurrection and crucifixion, we see that Luke gives 50% of his material is information that's not in the book of Matthew, Mark, or John. So there's quite a bit here in Luke that is not other places. But again, what is he seeking to show us? To give us a certainty of the things in which we are instructed. In a sense, a certainty of who Christ is, what he said and what he did. His goal is not to just produce some other biography of Jesus. Again, he sets it out to be an orderly account. But that's not the purpose. The purpose of the orderly account is to present Christ and to show that we can have certainty. And we ask ourselves, because each one of us as we are born in sin is apart from Christ, do we know this Savior? Do we see the Christ on the pages as just a good man or as the Savior that I'm in need of? Because the Son of Man was one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. And as we see here in verse 1 in our text, he says that he set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled. Another way to say is all these, those things that have been accomplished. It's pretty incredible. Incredible how long our word for accomplished is in the Greek. I won't even try to pronounce it because it's so long. But it's because it's a compound word that has so much richness to it that we don't have any way to convey it in the English. 
But when we think of the words accomplished, we think of the Luke 2. In those days, the days were accomplished. They brought forth an end. The end produced something. And what is the end producing throughout the book of Luke? The salvation of a people through that perfect Son of Man. That He would accomplish that which He came for. Jesus said Himself in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill or to accomplish them. This is that same idea of that term here in verse 1. And there's so much kind of an overtone that we, we miss, that it rings loud in the Greek that, hey, this is speaking about a beautiful work that this one that's going to be spoken of in this book will be accomplishing. And it is accomplished so much so that we can stand with certainty, as verse 4 says. We're not left wondering. First John has a similar purpose. I write these things that you may believe. And here Luke is writing these things. Christ is able to fulfill. He is able to accomplish that which was set in front of Him. Because He was the perfect Son of Man. He was able to perfectly keep the law. None of us can say that. And we're going to see as we walk through the book, the book of Luke that there's two sides of Christ's obedience. There's an active obedience and a passive obedience. The passive obedience was Christ was the spotless lamb. He'd come to take away the sins of the world. And by his death, passively, saves mankind. But there's an active obedience in that he perfectly fulfilled the law. That proved that he was not only the spotless lamb, but that son of man. The son of man who walked and was without sin. Who was tempted and was without sin. Who lived and understands our infirmities, our weaknesses. So that he can be, as Hebrews says, our perfect high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet was without sin. In the book of Luke, over half the book is spent looking toward the cross. We're going to get to, I think it's about Luke 10 and when Jesus is turning toward Jerusalem, and everything is driving toward the cross. Now, if you think about Luke 10, and just think about the Christmas narrative is Luke 2, we've only got about seven chapters of other information of just the life and ministry of Jesus. Because that perfect Son of Man came to fulfill something and to accomplish something. And the book of Luke shows that He did what He said He was going to do. But that perfect Son of Man, as He perfectly accomplished that which He sought out, He is an example for us. Because as He was the, a perfect man and His humanity was perfect, His mercy is also perfect. 
And then my prayer is that as we walk through the book of Luke, as we fall in love with our amazing Savior, who has poured out grace upon us, that we would see his heart for people. It's easy for us to kind of look ahead and kind of say, well, let's look at the book of Acts and look at the church and see how they were serving one another. But the reason is why were they serving one another the way that they are in Luke 2? Why did they have all things in common in Luke 5? It's because they saw Christ model it in their life. It's in Luke that we're going to see the parable of the Good Samaritan. Much of the unique information in the book of Luke is Christ showing mercy to those who need mercy. And we see it not just as, hey, that's a good thing to do. But we should see it as the beauty of the heart of our compassionate God for us who are weak, who are bound by sin, who need a Savior. Christ is a lover of people. And if we are His disciples, we are to walk in His footsteps and love the kind of people He loved. This morning on our short drive over here, we, uh, Brennan and Eddie and I were listening to Alistair Begg preach from John chapter 4 with the Samaritan at the well. A great example of Christ's love for the unlovely. Hundreds of years of animosity. But Christ breaks down those walls of animosity, breaks down the cultural barriers between a man and a woman and shows compassion to her and offers her living water. Throughout the book of Luke, we will see Jesus in people's homes more than any other book of the Bible. He understood how important it is to meet people where they are. We're going to see that people are not saved by just inviting them to church. It's by going to them. Loving them where they are, speaking truth into their situation. We see that Jesus has compassion on the downtrodden, but Luke also records Jesus speaking to women more than any other book of the Bible. Sadly, cultures gone by have not respected women and not have honored women but we see Christ's love for all people and a compassion for them. We see his love for people. Again, like I said earlier, his love for prayer. But as we see the book of Luke, again, Luke says he writes these things to Theophilus, an unbeliever, who seems to be examining and saying, this Jesus, is he who he said he was? Tell me more about. And as he begins to share these things, he writes an orderly account for the purpose of building confidence in our faith in Christ. There's a phrase that's repeated throughout the book of Luke that I've begun praying for us 
in Luke chapter 2, verse 33, it says, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which are spoken of him. This is speaking of Christ. They marveled at the things that were spoken of him. In Luke chapter 9, and they were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled at all the things Jesus did, and it continues, he said to his disciples, the people marveled at Christ. They were amazed. And then the day of the resurrection in Luke 24, 12, Peter arose and ran to the tomb And stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Oh, that we would just not read this as another biography of Jesus. But that we would stand in amazement and marvel at who Christ is. Not just past tense, because Christ still is. He is not some person who is dead, but He is risen. He has come to life. He has ascended and is reigning at the right hand of the throne of the Father right this moment. And oh, that we would see Him in all of His glory, in all of His humanity, and to see those perfectly combined in that perfect Son, a man. Do we marvel at who Jesus is? The more we study the Scriptures, the more we should see Christ And know that because of what Luke is saying here in verse 4, that you may know the certainty. Or brought to mind the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. He says, for this reason, I also suffer these things. He just got done saying, you know what, I I am an apostle. I've been appointed to teach. He says, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Why is he not ashamed to be able to proclaim the gospel? He says, for I know whom I have believed. He doesn't just say, I know what I believe. He says, I know whom I have believed. And then he continues, and am persuaded that he, that's whom, that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. You know, on the back side of Luke's promise to Theophilus, that promise of confidence, of certainty of Christ, that as we put our faith and our trust in Christ for salvation, there's certainty. But there's also a certainty of hope. That Paul says, even in the midst of of trials that I'm going through, that as I'm suffering for being a disciple, as an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles, he says, I'm confident. Why? Because I know whom I have believed. And as Luke presents Christ 
we can have a greater confidence in knowing the one whom we put our faith and trust in. That it's not just, oh yeah, I heard from so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. But we're hearing firsthand who Christ is. It's a beautiful thing that as Luke writes the book of Luke, he doesn't seem to be saying, hey, by by the way, the work of Jesus ended. He says the work of Jesus continued as it was planned to impact the life of the church straight into the book of Acts. That as they would face hardships, they would look back and to say, no, I know whom I have believed. And it allowed them to face persecution. It allowed them to understand the unity where they had. It was in Christ. And so we too look back and say, I know whom I have believed. And it's not just some information that I have, but I know whom I have believed with certainty that Paul wrote. May that be our prayer as we study and continue our study through the book of Luke. Let's pray. I'd like to just close with a prayer from the book of Common Prayer. It says, Almighty God, You called Luke the physician whose praise is in the gospel to be an evangelist and physician of the soul. By the grace of the Spirit and through the wholesome medicine of the gospel, give your church the same love and power to heal. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever, 